Hi, and welcome to Director's Notes. I'm Marbell, Editor-in-Chief, back with the first of our podcast interviews from the London Film Festival. A rightfully gruelling and all-encompassing viewing experience, Eric Popper's July 22nd depicts in real time the violent tragedy of the 2011 Utøya summer camp massacre in Norway, which saw a heavily armed right-wing extremist take the lives of 69 youths over the course of a relentless 72 minutes. I spoke to Eric at the London Film Festival about why it was important to tell this story from the perspective of the victims and survivors, and how his desire to represent the weight of time experienced by those trapped on the island as a tangible element of the film led him to capture the events of that day in a single unbroken take. We recorded this interview live in the uncontrollable conditions of the festival, so you'll probably notice that we were beset by intermittent phone signal noise, but hopefully it won't distract you from the interview too much. Welcome to Director's Notes, Eric. Thank you. We always start things the same way around here to find out a bit more about you and your work. And so with the question of what is it that brought you to filmmaking and directing? Well, this is sort of my second career. My first career was a journalist. Uh, well, I st- started studying uh, journalism and I uh, ended up as um, a photographer, a conflict photographer covering a lot of foreign news conflict areas and I did that for some years. Uh, I got a close call, I was hospitalized and um, going through sort of my situation at the moment and considering making a move from journalism to movie making. As I both have a strong interest in writing and taking pictures as well as of course I was I was, I was fancying watching movies. So I started preparing, leaving the journalism, and then I was able to study in Stockholm uh, movie making in Dramatic Institute, which is the Swedish school for film. And I did that for three years, and from that moment, like early 90s, I've been working all the way. I studied the art of film photography at the film school, but during those years I also started doing directorial you know, works. Mm-hmm. And um, by the time when I left the school, I was almost entirely just doing directing. I did photographing two feature movies for some friends of mine, but that was all. Mm -hmm. Since then, I've been just, you know, working on projects still interesting me, like when I was a journalist, which is sort of social issues. Mm -hmm. As I've been traveling so much around in the world when I was so young, and I had the opportunity to learn so much about the conditions of people living out there. I thought that that would be a key issue in my movies. Still, I have been dealing with more domestic issues as well. Mm -hmm. And the stories are most of all sort of based on elements or situations I've been through or people I met. And I put them into the stories, fictionalized stories. Yeah, because I was thinking that given your roots as a war photographer, it seems that you would naturally gravitate towards documentary. So why didn't that draw you in? Why did you end up the more narrative route? I think basically because what I ended up studying in Stockholm was focusing most of all on feature movie making. And I got attracted to that because I also saw that there was also an issue about making a story, getting it out there to as many as possible. And the feature movies seems to have a wider audience. It did at that time. And it also sometimes had a bigger impact on people. Mm -hmm. 
Your film, um, Utoya, July 22nd, is, I mean, I couldn't speak for about an hour after it. It's such a powerful portrayal of this, you know, terrible, terrible event. For um, anyone listening who doesn't know about the film, could you tell us about the film and your perspective? Because you take what we wouldn't um, consider the, the usual perspective when it comes to depicting these events. Well, I'm sort of presenting the story of what happened in Utøya, which was an incident seven years ago, happened outside Oslo, Norway. I wanted to go in and present what happened, which was a white man, a right-wing extremist, who killed 77 people at the summer camp, Labour Party youth organization summer camp. Mm-hmm. He also detonated a bomb downtown Oslo in front of the governmental building, sort of ruined downtown Oslo. But what he did out there on that small island just north of Oslo sort of expressed some sort of a cruelty which was hard to imagine. But it was also a big reminder as it was conducted by a white man, white Christian man. It was a political act. And um, we learned from that moment that it was, of course, hard to understand. But there was a trial going on, lasted for half a year. He was able to present his ideas over and over again. The focus shifted quite soon from what happened, especially from what happened out there on that island where so many of these kids were killed because he went out there on the island and shot them one by one. I wonder why don't we know more about what really happened, how it was to be a victim out there. Would it be possible for me to, together with the survivors and the families who express the same sort of sense of that, the focus has moved away. They received death threats from people when they express their story out in the media or so about what happened there, that people send them death threats, um, right-wing people, you know, through the internet and whatever. Yeah. Recently, we've seen that politicians on the right, you know, the Conservative part, are starting to express uh, opinions and almost follow these death threats in a way that it seems important by ethical reasons not only to wait but to really make this film now to remind people what really happened out there and to sort of get the focus back on what that was and what we can do to help these people uh, to help the survivors and the families to get back on track Mm -hmm. and get the focus there so that was basically uh, something I did together with the survivors, together with the families. Uh, I presented the idea of telling the story as seen from the perspective of one of of the kids entirely. Not tell his story, but just tell their story. Yeah, because you spent, uh, was it like a good year and a half more talking to the family and the survivors? But yeah, and the film is very explicit in this. This isn't a documentary. This isn't, and in fact, you say also that, you know, this is one truth, it's not the truth, it's not all truths. Why was that important that it was an amalgam of the stories in this one main character that we feature and she meets along the way as opposed to focusing on somebody who was really there as such? You see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Of course, I could choose to take one of the stories of more than 40 of the young people I interviewed, the survivors. There were a lot of stories who really could be told there, but the fact is that that would be that single person's story. But by sort of 
getting together all this material, we could get an idea about what really happened out there on the island. And then to make a fictionalized story in the middle would be actually a more truthful presentation for more of the young people out there. Mm-hmm. And for sure also, it was a question of trying to, to sort of present a story which was stripped of classic structure or everything we know about how to present the story, but just based on what we, we found, put that together in the story. Uh, brought in the survivors, had them on by my side while we were working with the script to adjusting it all the way so it could get as truthful as possible. Uh, that was important. There was also another ethical reason to make a fictionalized story is that then the families and the kids could watch the film without considering is that my sister or that my brother? Yeah. Uh, so they could feel free to watch the film. But it was important for me then that what we put together in the script was a really detailed presentation. So I brought in a lot of elements. For instance, in the film, there is someone who actually are using jokes to try to take care of the other ones, just to try to get them out of you know just breaking apart. Mm-hmm. There is also a scene where someone is singing, and we know that there are more than five places on the island where people were singing. We also know three of the songs, and one of the songs are the one we're using in the film. Of course, I use a lot of the material and put it into the actual script, but that seems to be sort of the best way for us to do it. Yeah. Another thing who popped up when I was doing the interviews that is that so many of the kids were expressing the time it took, those 72 minutes as the attack lasted. They felt it was just like an eternity. Nothing happened except that the attack just went on and on and on and got closer and closer. Where were the police? You know, who are they? And that was a situation which is hard for us to understand on such a small island. But still, those 72 minutes, I felt that that was so important for them. So I considered how can I put that into the film as a character and represent time as an element because for us, Filmmakers, we know that we can express almost everything there are, except from time. Mm-hmm. Time is the hardest thing. So that was really the only reason why I decided to see if I could try to capture it all in one single take, without any cuts, without any other elements in our languages like music or something else. Just strip the whole story down to the bone, allowing the audience to feel that they are present, they are there, it's like a sense of being there. Was that the key to, because I know when you first started looking at this um, project, you weren't sure you could even make it into a film, if it was possible to turn it into a film. So figuring out the real-time element, was that the key to unlocking that this could be told? Yeah, I think you're right, because it was one of the key sort of elements was able to unlock this project, open it up. Uh, The other thing was, of course, the decision of just staying close to this one character, Andrea, the Kaya character, and just tell it all from her perspective. Not to avoid showing the perpetrator, but not show him more than what they saw him as, you know, from distance, because when he got closer, they hide. Uh, And they wasn't sure that it was one, they thought it was several people attacking them. So that seems to be important. But I would just like to raise the issue of ethics behind this film because I really insist on the fact that the discussions about the ethics behind making a movie like this, I was discussing it with 
the survivors and everyone for a long while before we decided I decided to, to do the film. They were actually the one who told me that there is nothing to wait for. We need to make this movie now. You need to make this movie now. But you need to make it as truthful as you can because it's important to get this story out there. And once again, it was also important for me that they were the supporters behind the film, that they were allowed to follow me through the whole process of making the script, working with rehearsals with actors, which I used more than three months. I set it up like a theater play. So they you know, used scene by scene and then putting them all together, preparing them for what they were to go through. And then finally move out to the island to do the filming. So the survivors were present during the whole process. So even when I was out there filming it, trying to see if we could capture in this one long take, they were seated just besides me, three of them. So it was important that they were supporting the project, that it was as much, it was even more their need of getting this story out than our need, really. Yeah. Although, you know, as we've spoken about there, it's um, one take. It was something that you shot over five um, subsequent days. How did um, the shooting alter each day? What were you discovering, you know, day one that then informed day two and informed day three and such like? Did you reset like that or was it just kind of individual? Yeah, a new take, a new take. No, uh, first of all, um, for the last four weeks of rehearsing with the actors, I was bringing in the DOP, the, the cameraman, and he was joining and he was with them all the time because I needed to allow these young amateurs to get used to the camera and then start to forget about the camera because the first day when he showed up, they were just so suddenly they were reminded about we're going to make a movie and they were sort of also acting towards the camera. And I said, forget about that. He's just one among you. So we needed time just to allow them to get used to it and forget about him so he could really be there. And that was also part of the process. Then, as I was putting the elements in the story together, I moved us from downtown Oslo, from some industry area, out to the film studios outside Oslo, where I measured up the whole island. So in between there, we were setting up posts and we were running through, doing the whole story together with the camera and everyone, just to, to get it into our bodies. And I was starting to lift their performance, pushing them a bit harder. Still not using sound, not the gunfire. I hold that back all the way until I, I did the actual filming. But then we spent like a week out there in the film studios and then we moved out to the island. We had some days of rehearsal out there, putting it all together. And uh, I gave them two days off while we were just working with the technical issues, you know, about all the movements and how to be able to cope with running up and down there and out into the ocean and back again. And, it's, it's all done in one. Mm -hmm. So when that was done, they all showed up and I had those five days from Monday to Friday with an option of doing one take a day or try to make one take a day because as soon as I'd done that, they were all totally exhausted. Yeah. So I did only have those five tries. Mm -hmm. And the one I'm using in the film is the one which is day number three. So there's not hidden cuts and there's not like an amalgam of well, days? Well, there is two hidden cuts, but the hidden cuts is just to, to limit the size of us running because we have filmed it on the neighbor island of Utøya, which is just like 150 meters away, because Utøya has changed so much. 
So we were able to make that island look exactly like Utøya. Uh, there was only two issues, that the distance running through the woods were bigger here. Mm -hmm. So twice when we were doing it all, and we, we just did it in one long run, but uh, then they are going down with the camera and then picking it up so I could cut just like a movement, just to reduce that. But nothing happened. They were all in action. They were all in performance during the whole process. And I did that one other place where there was she's also running by the ocean there. Yeah. So that's the only reason for those cuts. And the audience shouldn't notice those cuts really. The, yeah. That was of course not the idea. But the cuts doesn't hide anything else either. I mean they were all doing it in this one mm -hmm. one block. Talking about the um, cinematography style, for the large majority of the film it's observational, but there is, um, near the beginning, there's a part where it kind of feels almost POV, where they're behind the tree yeah. looking up and it feels like a character. And I was just curious as to, you know, because that's the only section at least that I noticed that have had that POV feel to it versus the rest of it being um, observational. Well, it, it does also repeat itself later on when the shooting is really close and the camera is hiding straight into the wall mm -hmm. there as well. Um, but we were discussing that, Martin and I, you know, sort of the role of the camera, really. I presented him some footage because still in between my feature movies, I do take a camera and I'm doing small reportages from underreported conflict areas in the world. And I showed him some recent footage I did in East Congo some years ago where I seem not to turn off the camera. The footage very often is like 10, 15, 20 meters long, sort of just one take, mm. which is actually just me running around trying to tell and show. So I showed him that footage and we looked into it and I said, what is really the role here in the camera? In a way, it's something in between. It's observing what's happening, but it's also there present in the moment. So, of course, we discuss that in this movie. Does the camera present a person, a human being there? Is it possible to talk to the camera or not? So we decided by the end that you are participating. You have to hide as well as the rest. In a way, it's someone filming there, but you don't stop considering who that might be watching the film for the third time or if you're a professional of course you can ask yourself who the camera is mm -hmm. but that was important so i wanted the camera to try to hide as well as the young kids mm -hmm. to be there among them and almost you know represent one of them yeah. uh, but still not allow them to ask for help if you see what i mean yeah. i mean there's a moment where the protagonist is holding a girl trying to save her life and you see slowly that the girl is dying which, of course, is something of the most lonely thing you can imagine mm -hmm. experiencing. Still, um, it shouldn't be some. you couldn't ask for help, yeah. even not to the camera. Yeah. In a way, I feel it worked quite well, but we did a lot of studies on how to behave with the camera. Yeah. Also on a technical side, um, I was informed as to how you did the sound design. So, for instance, you, know, you spoke about the running into the sea. You know, I was too caught up in the moment, but reflecting on it later, I was kind of just, but how do you do the sound design? Because there's a cameraman following, but I couldn't remember hearing his splashes. No. So could you talk about that? Well, I wanted it to be as truthful as possible. You could even imagine having the sound of someone running after you, but I felt that was wrong. So we sort of cleaned up the soundtrack as much as we could. We did some folder tracks 
put into there and, and changed it a bit on some places just to remove the sound from the camera. Mm -hmm. But that was basically the only thing. I wanted to strip it down. I even wanted to use some of the sounds from the East Congo material where I'm sometimes bumping into elements. And sometimes you can get on the microphone, you know, boom, boom. Yeah. So we, we could allow us to use those elements if we felt it was natural. But I didn't want to place them more than, than necessary, really. I think that was important. You um, have said, I've read um, other interviews with you, and I know that you heavily resisted a trailer being made for this and traditional marketing. And so, yeah, I just wanted to um, you know, ask you about that and you know, why you felt it was important to hold back those elements and not market the film the way that you would market any other film. Basically, just on behalf of the victims and the survivors because the world today is so small so if you allow a trailer to come out there or clips from the film it shows up in Norway it shows up you know an hour later mm -hmm. so to respect the survivors and how they are dealing with this you know their life right now I wanted to protect them as much as we could and when we had the artwork that it should be so neat and clean. It's, it should just be the face of Kaya just watching you, nothing else. Yeah. There's one image from the film still, it's the only thing I allowed. It's just her standing in the wood just watching you, mm. nothing else. And I did that in a close dialogue with the groups and with the, with the parents and, and, the, and the survivors. So we chose that. At the same time, I said that in about six months' time, when the film is opening up in the rest of the world, there will probably be material coming out mm -hmm. but until then you should be prepared you know and, and have your time to uh, get used to the fact that this film is made um, so that was important for me but another issue which was as important as that is that I wanted to have a lot of closed screening around in Norway for the survivors and the families so they could watch the film before it was released yeah we had a lot of psychologists uh, present at the screenings I also had them, you know, actually filming. So they were around us all the time to help us while making the movie and while we were presenting the movie for those victims, really. You know, as strangely tends to happen with films, you know, right around the same time as this film is here at London and such, Paul Greengrass has created a film of the same events um, mm -hmm. called On the 22nd of July, yeah. which takes a much different perspective on it I haven't seen it yet but from what I've read very much looks at the shooter and his life and his motivations what are your thoughts on that well the reason why I wanted to make a story about the victims is that every time we see a movie made about an incident like this it's about the perpetrator and we know so much about him already so I feel we have a responsibility questioning ourselves how much sort of focus should he get I think that's a hard thing um, so it was very important for me to tell the story about the victims uh, and not his story. Um, so there is an answer in that one. Uh, still, Paul Greengrass is you know, a remarkable filmmaker. I know he's, he's, he's really done his best in presenting the story as truthful as possible. Although I know that he has changed quite a lot in the story from what happened with people with actual names, which I think is it's a hard thing to do. Uh, he has made up a love story in the middle there, which is absolutely, yeah, I think it's hard. Yeah. I wonder why he did that. Because he's using the whole issue here, what happens as sort of like a backdrop for this love story, which uh, 
I was surprised when I heard about that. Um, it would never be in my mind to do that in respect for what happened. But I think, well, on a good day, this film might be able to sort of represent what happened, both of them together. Mm-hmm. So maybe they are presenting a wider, you know, sort of picture of what happened. Yeah. Eric, thank you very much for talking to us today. It is, I mean, I was speechless after I saw the film and you can really tell your intentions in the film and it's been one of the most intense cinematic experiences you know, I've ever had. So, you know, thank you very much for talking to us about it. Well, thank you for inviting me to the programme. Thanks for joining us on the show. Next week, we'll be bringing you our interview with Christina Cho, who's been making a splash across the festival circuit with her debut feature, the Sundance award-winning psychodrama Nancy. As always, until then, you can find our daily filmmaker interviews at directorsnotes.com, where, for the first time in our 12-year existence, you can now submit your work to be considered by the Director's Notes programming team for a potential feature on the site or here in the podcast. As you'd expect from DN, we consider films across all genres, forms and lengths, so if you have a film you think we'd like, send it over as we can't wait to see what you have to show us. Speak to you soon.